Welcome to Liminal Theology, a theological podcast exploring boundaries, transitions, and being in between. I'm your host, Jonathan Best, and join me as we journey into liminal space. It's my pleasure this morning to welcome Paul Chilcote to the show. Paul is a Wesley scholar, church historian, and theologian. Recently retired, he served numerous academic institutions, including Asbury Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida, Ashland Theological Seminary in Ohio, Methodist Theological School in Ohio, and Duke University. He has been involved in theological education on three continents, serving as a missionary in Kenya, as a founding faculty member of Africa University in Zimbabwe. He is the author of more than 20 books, including Recapturing the Wesley's Vision, Praying in the Wesley Spirit, The Song Forever New, Lent and Easter with Charles Wesley, to name a few. Today, Paul is here to talk with me about his latest book, Active Faith, Resisting Four Dangerous Ideologies with the Wesleyan Way, along with his life's work and vision for the future. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks, Jonathan. Great to be here. Thank- Appreciate the invitation. You're very welcome. So I wanted to begin to talk with about Active Faith mm-hmm. and um, talk to with me about the kind of the vision for the book, how this book came to be, mm-hmm. and um, Active Faith, I think, is a little different from some of your other works, yeah. so uh, share with me a little bit how it came to be. Sure. Let me uh, maybe start by saying something about where this fits into other things that I've done. Um, I've tended, in some ways, uh, now that I reflect back on kind of a, a larger life's work, um, I think about um, the ways in which I've kind of upheld uh, underdogs, you know, thought about uh, underdogs in history and theology. So a lot of my earliest publication was on women uh, in the life of the church, and particularly the issue of uh, women preachers and ordination and those kinds of things. Um, And then I am a Wesley scholar, and um, uh, people would might immediately think John Wesley, but the underdog is the younger brother Charles. Um, and the thousands of hymns that he produced for the life of the church. So a lot of my work uh, in that arena has been trying to get Charles out from under the shadow Mm. of older brother John. Um, So there's, you know, has been this kind of trajectory uh, in my work related to those who are forgotten, those Mm. who are kind of on the sidelines. And this new book does fit in some ways uh, into that pattern as well, Uh, particularly thinking about some of the developments in the life of the church today, and um, very specifically uh, the LGBTQ plus community and the marginalization of that particular uh, group within the life of the church and, and in the world as well, and concerns about that. So the, the origins of active faith are really related to the work, almost directly, uh, of one of my very best friends, Steve Harper. Um, and Steve, who was really concerned about an inclusive church and wanting to promote a vision of, in, of an inclusive church, uh, wrote a book he entitled uh, Holy Love, A Biblical Theology of Human Sexuality. Uh, And in that, he basically argues for the inclusion of uh, LGBTQ uh, folk in the community of faith and um, and doing all that we can to 
uh, create a more inclusive uh, community. Um, it immediately struck me, uh, not only did I agree with him, you know, with regard to kind of the basics of that, um, but I wanted to extend that a little bit further, but also had a number of other, I'll, I'll just call them related issues uh, to that issue of inclusivity, the positive aspect of it, that have kind of really strong negative counterparts. And that's where the, the subtitle of the book comes from, Resisting Four Dangerous Ideologies with the Wesleyan Way. Um, and this issue of these ideologies has troubled me for quite some time. Um, and not knowing exactly what to do with that. And then when Steve's book came out, all of this kind of came together in my mind uh, as something of a follow-up. And chapter one is really the substantial follow-up to what Steve had done in his book. But then adding these other, uh, other issues, these other dimensions uh, that I felt were maybe, uh, I'll even say, critical in the life of the church uh, today. So that's kind of the origins uh, of the book. Um, so each, each of the chapters um, is really oriented around practices that help cultivate important virtues mm -hmm. in the Christian life. So the first chapter is related to the practice of humility. I, li I like to alliterate things, <laughs> I might say too, because it makes it easier for me to, re for me to remember them, uh, let alone a reader or a student. So the first chapter is on humility, and then the other chapters on practices of hospitality, healing, and holiness. And these four practices uh, have the virtues uh, that, that correlate with them of truth and joy and peace and love. But the foil, so to speak, in each of these chapters is the dangerous ideology. That The first one is um, fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second chapter, uh, with the counterpart of hospitality, uh, is Christian nationalism. Uh, the third looks at healing. Um, and that'll take a little bit more explanation maybe down the road. In fact, these last two chapters are not maybe as immediately apparent as mm -hmm. the first two are. Mm -hmm. uh, but that deals with healing, and the counterpart to that is dispensationalism. Mm -hmm. um, and what I'm really getting at in that chapter is the way in which, in my view, dispensationalism shifts people's attention away from this world mm -hmm. to the life after mm -hmm. this world, um, and the, the issue that I identify there is, uh, is climate change, mm -hmm. uh, healing our planet. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and then the fourth chapter, looking at holiness and the counterpart to that, probably the least known by any mm -hmm. of your listeners, uh, the term is antinomianism, basically means no law or against the law, mm -hmm. and has to do more than anything else with what I would describe as a truncated gospel. Mm -hmm. It's not the whole gospel. And I hope, I hope we'll have a chance to mm -hmm. kind of walk through each of these and, and uh, for me to kind of talk yeah. about the basics of, of each of those. So that gives you kind of a, of a jump start into the mm -hmm. book, kind of the origins of it and kind of the way it's basically organized. Are you speaking from mainly a Methodist perspective or more of a ecumenical kind of view in terms of resisting these dangerous mm -hmm. ideologies and moving forward with a kind of progressive vision. This is a vision for 
Methodists, or is this also a vision for you know the wider wider Christian community and, and nation? Yeah, the answer to all those questions is basically yes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I do come from a, a Wesleyan perspective. Uh-huh. I am a Wesley scholar and a kind of deep rooted Methodist, uh, but I'm but I'm also deeply concerned about ecumenical issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to think that I'm a person with a really a wide embrace. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to be able to be in conversation with, be in fellowship with, actually, uh, Christians of all different sorts and varieties. So d- despite the fact that I do come at these issues, I guess I would say, from a decidedly Wesleyan perspective, uh, and I do, um, I do have um, included in this volume, this little book, um, an appendix, which is uh, a progressive Wesleyan um, declaration. Mm-hmm. In fact, the original uh, title that I had in my mind for this book was a progressive Wesleyan manifesto. Hmm. And my wife, Janet, said, do, do, <laughs> not, do not use the language of manifesto, manifesto. <laughs> because nobody will read it then who you really would like to read, to read it. Um, so, you know, I, uh, yes, I, I'm, I'm a Wesleyan and kind of acknowledge that uh, basic location within the life of the church, but uh, I've been involved in a number of different dialogues, even provided leadership uh, in those with, uh, with Baptists, with the Salvation Army, with the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. So I'm really interested in this reaching beyond a simply Methodist readership uh, into the broader terrain. One other thing I might just add to that is that uh, the, some of these, um, maybe all four of these dangerous ideologies, um, I locate pretty specifically within the Protestant tradition okay. um, and maybe even more, um, de- more clearly defined within the evangelical wing sure. of the Protestant tradition. That's where I... That's where I sense that these tend to reside more fully than uh, in other traditions. But I'm sure that Catholicism has its own counterparts, as well as the Orthodox Mm -hmm. tradition, to say nothing of other religions. Mm -hmm. So the same same kind of concerns uh, uh, are kind of shape people's lives Mm -hmm. in in all of these other uh, traditions. I might, might, it makes me uh, think about a point that I, you know, just in, in um, kind of preparing myself for our conversation. Yeah. What is the connection between this book, these ideas, and liminal theology? Mm-hmm. Uh, let me just uh, kind yeah. of thrash that out a little bit here, uh, kind of thinking out loud about it. I think in my reflections, um, liminal times... You know, times that are transitional, where, where things seem to be unclear. I think the response of most people to those times um, is, is either one of two things. Either they kind of shut down or lock down mm-hmm. and, and get pushed into really extreme mm-hmm. directions because, because liminal times are gray. And my decided opinion is that most people do not like to live in gray. Mm-hmm. They really prefer black and white. So if the time is gray, most people are looking 
for black and white and oftentimes want some kind of authority mm-hmm. that confirms mm-hmm. that very clear-cut uh, dynamic for them. So I think that's the way most people tend to be. On the opposite end of the spectrum, an, another possible reaction to liminal times uh, is is a real genuine openness. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe even a sense of, maybe I'll, I'll wear my heart on my sleeve to say that look at these times as adventurous, mm. you know, not as threatening, but as a part of the adventure of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the need that we have from time to time to think through issues clearly. Uh, and not just that, but to discern mm-hmm. what God is doing mm-hmm. um, in these particular moments. Um, and I don't think there's any question whatsoever, you know, in this monumental shift, maybe even seismic kind of shift and change from modernity to the postmodern world or whatever we want to label it, um, that certainly makes this time liminal. Mm-hmm. Um, and even other aspects of life are liminal. If you think of, you know, even the shift, all these are interrelated, mm-hmm. of course, but the shift from a scientific world to a technological world mm-hmm. How do we make sense of this? You know, how do we make sense of the digital age? And how is it shaping or reshaping humanity? What does all of that mean? Mm-hmm. So, so in those circumstances, some people simply want 1953. <laughs> you know, take me back to 1953. Mm-hmm. That's when things were clear. Mm-hmm. And and I'll be really upfront and honest too to say that for you know I'm I'm a white. You know, middle-aged, old, getting older, <laughs> you know, middle-class kind of a person. And for many people in the United States, that means white. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, take me back to a time when white people were in control, mm-hmm. when the world in which we live here, our environment, um, wasn't changing dramatically, shifting um, uh, into a time not too far down the road when quote, white people in the United States will Mm -hmm. be in a minority Mm -hmm. um, in a brown, black, multicolored world. So um, the the dangerous ideologies that I identify here, maybe primarily those first two, fundamentalism Mm -hmm. and nationalism, really, I think, feed almost in a frenetic way on these kind of changes in our world and our environment. Would you say your text... Is it, is this a sort of kind of guide through this liminal time of a way of helping us react not in through the ideologies that you've mentioned, mm-hmm. but rather toward you know the the virtues that you've expounded, you know, humility, hospitality. Would you say that active faith is a way of helping those who may be perhaps uncomfortable with these change with these changes or not uh, unsure yeah. how to navigate through these changes is active faith kind of a guide through this kind of liminal transitional time yeah that's a great question the the where i immediately go to in my own mind is practices mm-hmm. and that's what i mean the the heart and core of this book really is uh, on the positive side of it all about practices. Mm -hmm. And I'm more and more convinced that practices shape our lives much more than ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Both are important, and there's an obvious interrelationship between practices and ideas. They're not separate in any way whatsoever. But I really believe that practices shape our character, um, shape who we are and what we do mm -hmm. as a consequence of that. And if you think of you know, us as human beings basically as, uh, as thinkers and feelers and actors, um, all three of those dimensions get shaped by our practice. And the, I suppose the, um, the reality of this for most people is that they, they simply don't attend to the issue of what they practice or mm -hmm. how they practice or why they practice. You can be sure they engage in all different kinds of practices. Um, maybe, maybe the most dominant practice in our culture is watching television, you know, or sitting in front of a screen. Mm -hmm. Th those are practices. Mm -hmm. um, and we're only, I think, beginning to get a sense of how those practices shape us. Mm -hmm. But you see, most people, they don't, they don't think, oh, I'm sitting here in front of my television set watching, um, I'll, I'll say, MSNBC or watching Fox News uh -huh. <laughs> and, yeah. and really don't give much thought to how is, how is what I'm consuming here, mm -hmm. how is that shaping who I am, mm -hmm. uh, shaping my attitudes and then the behavior yeah. that emerges from those attitudes. So the an answer to the question, the primary answer is um, this book is really centrally about practices and how practices um, that are actually quite historic in some ways in the Christian tradition, how those shape us into the whole human beings that I believe God intends us to be in, in God's great dream and vision mm -hmm. uh, of creation, um, how they shape us into those kind of people, people who look and act and talk like Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so pra I think practice is a, is a key um, in, in all of this. Is that why you've included kind of questions for, for reflection and um, other exercises into mm -hmm. attempt to kind of, as a way of thinking about your own practices and how um, those can negatively or positively shape your behavior? Yeah. Yeah, each, each chapter, um, let me just kind of walk through the, the structure of each uh, chapter with you. Uh, first, you know, I, I kind of identify um, the central uh, practice that uh, mm -hmm. I think is important. So the, in the first chapter, uh, that's the practice of humility. And I start by looking at, at that issue, that idea, that concept in Scripture. Mm -hmm. uh, what does the Bible have to say about this? and then uh, illustrate it with some significant figure um, in Christian history or mm -hmm. history in general. So just to illustrate concretely in that first chapter on humility, uh, I look closely at uh, Philippians 2, 5 mm -hmm. to 11. Um, Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not consider uh, equality with God mm -hmm. a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, sometimes mm -hmm. known as the kenotic, Mm -hmm. text, kenosis, meaning self-emptying, Greek word for that. So I look at the um, at uh, what Scripture says about Jesus and humility. 
And it's, it's interesting to me, this is actually probably one of the earliest hymns of the church that Paul is quoting in his letter to the Philippians. So this is something that the early Christians would have sung about Jesus. Another really critical practice, by the way. Uh, oftentimes what we believe comes out of what we sing. Mm -hmm. uh, that's maybe a, an idea to come back to later yeah. on. Then uh, I use Thomas Akempis and his uh, famous uh, devotional work, The Imitation of Christ, to kind of illustrate the center of central uh, concerns about uh, humility in the Christian life. And then in each chapter, I turn to the ideology. After that kind of biblical historical introduction, uh, so in this chapter, look at uh, the danger of fundamentalism and just to identify that for the listener kind of clearly. Mm -hmm. um, the, the danger of fundamentalism is that the fundamentalist essentially makes the claim, I or we, that person's community, possess all truth. Mm -hmm. that, that no one else understands things in the way we do, have the correct understanding of things as we do. Uh, and I just find that uh, that claim to possess the truth to be extremely dangerous, mm -hmm. not only in the life of faith for Christians or other religious traditions, but in, in our world in general. Uh, so uh, obviously uh, it takes humility um, to make the claim we don't have all the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, and we need to be in conversation with people who are different from us, mm -hmm. even, in order to unearth truth or understand truth more fully than we do. Mm -hmm. um, and then in each chapter as well, I use uh, what I call a contemporary concern mm -hmm. that kind of illustrates how the dangerous ideology has functioned or shaped people's lives, misshaped uh, people's lives. Uh, and so in this first chapter, I look at the ministry of women uh, and the LGBTQ community mm -hmm. uh, and what has happened uh, to both women and, and those folks as well. Um, and then I close each chapter, and this is where we, we really began in this segment of our conversation together, with a practice. Mm -hmm. um, I provide um, uh, some instructions uh, related to a particular practice, this one obviously cultivating uh, humility um, and dealing with the issue of truth. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and here I use uh, what's called the prayer of examine, mm -hmm. uh, which I have always found to be an extremely helpful uh, practice that kind of recollects the day, you know, reflecting back on the day and asking yourself, questions um, about where where did I exhibit humility in this day? Mm -hmm. uh, where did pride kind of well up within me and kind of take over um, my experience uh, and that of those around me? So the prayer of examine, uh, which comes out of um, Ignatius of Loyola, uh, the Jesuit tradition, uh, is the practice I, I use. And then discussion questions for both personal and group use. Could you describe the the Wesleyan way? Could you describe how you've used this Wesleyan way to create this kind of progressive vision yeah. um, for Christian uh, for Christian practice? Um, and as a Wesley scholar, how do the Wesleys 
inform this progressive vision? Yeah, there. Are, I mean, there are two two words that just immediately surface in my mind. Uh, the first is grace, mm -hmm. and the second is holiness. Mm -hmm. um, great, and, and I guess I would think of those primarily as foundation mm -hmm. and goal. Mm -hmm. um, so the uh, Wesleyan theology is a theology uh, rooted in in grace, uh, rooted in God's. Um, uh, overwhelming love for the creation and all creatures that God has created. Um, so grace in the Wesleyan tradition is kind of synonymous with love. Mm -hmm. So grace equals love, love equals grace. Uh, but usually when I talk about love and grace, um, I, I would like to say something like, um, love is God's essence. You know, the central nature of who God is, is, is unconditional love. Grace is the way in which that love is manifested to us. That's, in other words, grace is the way in which we experience God's love for us. So grace is a profoundly relational term. Love, love tends to be more abstract, mm -hmm. like a thing floating up there in space somewhere. Um, when we know it's it's much more than that, it's maybe more a verb than a noun, etc. But um, grace is the way we experience that uh, love of God in our lives. So that's kind of the foundation of the Wesleyan way. And I hope you know a listener could could immediately make a connection, therefore, with humility, for example, or hospitality, mm -hmm. and healing, and and then holiness. Mm -hmm. Where we're headed is the goal. Uh, the theme of holiness pervaded the Wesley's lives from beginning to end, both John and Charles. Um, and holiness for the Wesley's essentially meant the fullest possible love of God and the fullest possible love of neighbor. Mm -hmm. um, so whenever Wesley, John Wesley in particular, was pushed against a wall, and, and uh, someone mandated, you know, that he define what perfect love or, or holiness really meant, he always deferred to the two great commandments. That's always where he went. Holiness is, is the, the fullest possible love of God and the fullest possible love of neighbor. Mm -hmm. So again, my hope is that, that a listener could make immediate connections with those four practices of humility, hospitality, healing, and holiness itself in thinking about how holiness and love connect with each other. Because mm -hmm. each of, you know, when, when all is said and done, uh, regardless of the fact that these practices are intended to cultivate truth, mm -hmm. joy, peace, and love, it really is all about love. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that the peace and the joy and even the truth are all aspects of the love of God, uh, particularly as we have come to know that love through the, uh, the person of Jesus Christ and the power of the indwelling spirit mm -hmm. in our lives. Speaking of the Wesleyan way and this kind of um, understanding this concept of love and openness, is active faith a response to recent actions within the United Methodist Church regarding LGBTQ+. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, this is where, you know, the, the first chapter and, and my dealing with the issue of fundamentalism, uh, which oftentimes can be defined within Christian circles, uh, aligned with biblical literalism. Mm -hmm. So fu fundamentalism and literalism, with I guess with regard to any religious text, it, it could be the Quran, mm -hmm. you see, a, a kind of Quranic fundamentalism within Islam or or the Rig Vedas, you know, in, in, in Eastern traditions. Uh, it's not uh, unique in any way to the Christian uh, tradition. But yeah, it is related to, um, to concerns within my own church, the United Methodist Church, about these kind of um, uh, tensions uh, and, and even an anxiety within the church that surrounds them. So um, I'm sure not all of your listeners are United Methodists who you know are, are you know reading United Methodist news on a daily basis. <laughs> so just to kind of clue them in on what's going on for us right now, like like many of the other, um, I'll call them mainline Protestant denominations, like the Episcopal Church, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, uh, Methodists have been struggling. Um, really since the mid-20th century. I can almost put a specific date of 1972 on this. We've been struggling with issues of human sexuality. And um, some within the Methodist tradition, although maybe not as many as within other more evangelical or even self-defined fundamentalist traditions, uh, read scriptural texts that I'm going to say seem to be related to homosexuality uh, in very particular ways. Mm -hmm. um, so um, the United Methodist Church has been struggling with this issue for half a century, uh, but it seems as though we are coming, uh, as other denominations have before us uh, in the past decade or more, um, maybe to a, something of a major schism, mm -hmm. a division within the life of the church between, um, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I hesitate to call them biblical fundamentalists mm -hmm. um, and, and um, more liberal interpreter, interpreters of scripture. Not sure those labels really help us a lot. So in, um, to be specific about this issue, in, and I deal with this a little bit, mm -hmm. Um, in my first chapter, although Steve Harper deals with it more fully mm -hmm. in uh, his book on holy love, uh, there are five or six <coughs> primary texts um, in, script, in the Old and New Testaments that seem to touch on the issue of homosexuality. Um, I'm just going to cut to the chase mm -hmm. um, and say that in my reading of those texts, um, none of them actually none of those five or six texts deal specifically with the issue of homosexuality as we would define it today. Mm -hmm. um, uh, they, they deal with, um, uh, with issues of pediatry or, or sodomy um, that were defined in very different ways in the biblical world than any of those things are defined today. So again, the, the kind of uh, conclusions that I draw from my, what I would say, a really close study of those texts, um, not, not a, um, um, not a, I'm not sure what word I want to use, 
not a renegade or, or radical interpretation, but it's just a real serious exegetical study of those texts, leads me to the conclusion that they do not, in fact, prohibit um, same-sex behaviors as we would define them uh, today. Now, obviously, there's a, you, know, you could do five or six podcasts just on this issue alone uh, or more. Um, so, and, and I want to acknowledge that these are not easy issues whatsoever. These are very difficult. But what I find problematic um, is when um, conclusions are drawn with regard to those texts, or I also deal with texts related to the ministry of women, mm-hmm. you know, in my mm-hmm. first year, with that issue of women, when they draw conclusions that um, are so myopic, that are so narrowly visioned, that aren't really shaped by a thorough examination of the context. Um, and, you know, oftentimes um, over the years I've made a, a kind of simple, maybe simplistic even, distinction between what Scripture describes and what Scripture prescribes. In other words, is Scripture in, in whatever it is, let's take the women's issue, uh, in 1 Corinthians or 1 Timothy, is Paul there, is he, is he uh, discussing an issue, is he simply describing a situation uh, in those churches, or is he, to put it um, maybe in the, in the most ultimate sense, is he laying down a law mm-hmm. for all times and all places with regard to practices or issues uh, that were going on there? And... Um, uh, in, in conversations with a fundamentalist, for example, who has very strong feelings that women should not be preachers, that, that the Bible prohibits women, maybe even from speaking in church. They cannot have any leadership role, etc. I'll oftentimes uh, ask them, um, if I, especially if I know their spouse, wife, say, well, your, your wife cuts her hair. She's had her hair cut. Doesn't Scripture prohibit women from cutting their hair? In other words, he's made a decision already that that's descriptive mm-hmm. of that particular context and time. It's not laying down a law for all times and all places. It's not prescriptive. So I think, you know, a kind of a, a larger sense of, of the word and narratives and how they function really helps us uh, as we tackle some of these difficult issues. That's not to say there won't be an impasse uh, in the end, and maybe there will be, and maybe within the United Methodist Church, maybe we have uh, arrived at an ultimate impasse uh, where one group within the life of the church says that, um, that um, these texts, these statements, uh, seem to us to be very clear in the prohibition of same-sex behaviors, etc., Another group says, no, we just, we don't see that. And we believe that the uh, that scriptural witness is one of inclusivity uh, and grace and mercy uh, and love um, and articulate their view of scripture from that perspective. Um, and in the end, we, we can either agree to disagree, but remain together mm-hmm. or agree to disagree and part company mm-hmm. with each other. 
My, I, I've always been a strong advocate of unity, and, and my hope is always that, that the church will remain united because I feel its mission is really compromised with division. Um, but we know through the history of the church that those divisions have happened and, and have happened within Methodism before. For example, around the issue of slavery. So as, again, in parallel fashion with other Protestant denominations in the United States, uh, through that period in the mid-19th century, you ended up with two different churches, mm -hmm. the Methodist Episcopal Church and the Methodist Episcopal Church South, which eventually then, in the 20th century, reunited. Uh, once the issues surrounding that particular uh, practice um, dissipated or, you know, there was a... a a, a consensus, a growing consensus that, you know, slavery was wrong, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and so those things change. Yeah. Did you talk a little bit about the, um, the idea of nationalism? Yeah. Um, and how that perhaps ties into fundamentalism. Is, is, is fundamentalism mm -hmm. a natural outgrowth of nationalism, or does nationalism originate in fundamentalism. How is that relation, what is the relationship between those two? Since you've, you've put those two chapters together, right. um, they're, they're, could you uh, elaborate a little bit about uh, nationalism, Christian nationalism? Because I, I, I have a feeling a lot of these issues, nationalism and fundamentalism, there is a, there's, a, there's a strong connection there in terms mm -hmm. of ideology. Yeah, there's no question in my mind that there's a close link between between the two. Um, I'm not sure um, I can articulate exactly how how they're linked very very clearly. Um, it in the uh, prologue of the book, I might just read uh, one statement I make here, which gives us, I think, a very clear understanding of what um, uh, what Christian nationalism is. It, basically say the Christian nationalist believes that his or her tribe is superior to all others. Uh, but we find joy when we make room for and welcome others through our hospitality, when we embrace the diversity that surrounds us. So um, rather than kind of making that intimate connection with fundamentalism, mm -hmm. um, what I think is more helpful on national, with regard to nationalism is to tie it in with the radical changes that are happening in our culture in North America, in society. And kind of what I referred to earlier as that kind of white power and privilege. Um, and, uh, and that's all a part of the, of the structures of the church. You know, there, there was a time when the church was a very powerful institution in the United States. We've seen that wane you know, pretty seriously um, and decline of, of mainline Protestant Christianity in particular uh, through the last half century or more as well. But in that, in that nostalgia um, that's related to white power and privilege, there is that, again, I'll say 1953, you know, you just... That, that just felt so good, you know. Mm -hmm. If you were white in America, that just felt so good. Um, and a, a desire to return to that when things weren't as messy as they are. When things were, and, and I'm using this language very intentionally, black and white. Mm -hmm. You know, it was very clear-cut, black and white. 
so that nationalism rises out of that nostalgia um, and, a, and a grief over the loss of power and privilege in culture. Now, what I would hope any practicing Christian or devout follower of Jesus would sense is that that nationalism, that sense that my tribe is superior to all others, is antithetical to the Christian faith. Um, and, and could immediately see how Jesus, in fact, subverts all those kinds of nationalistic attitudes in his own time. So oftentimes the heroes of his stories, just pick on one, the Good Samaritan is a Samaritan. <laughs> you know, is, is a person who is different from the Jewish community to which he's speaking. And in fact, a hated outsider, you see, on the part of those who were stirring up Jewish nationalism in Jesus' own time. It's not that nationalism, you see, is anything new. Mm -hmm. it's, it's as ancient as human, uh, as human history. Um, and whenever that kind of nationalistic spirit arises, uh, or as it did in Jesus' time, he subverts it. Uh, he does everything he can possibly do to help people come to a, an understanding of the, I almost want to say, kaleidoscopic vision of God. Mm -hmm. You know, God, God has created, sorry, I'm kind of chasing a rabbit down a trail here, but you know, God, God has created humanity and the whole created order with such amazing diversity. And if you just ask yourself the question, why would God do that if God doesn't love diversity? Mm -hmm. You know, so my, my perspective is uh, that God, in fact, loves diversity. Um, so anything that is antithetical to that, anything that wants to kind of push us in the opposite direction, to isolate my tribe, my group from others, um, instead of finding ways to appreciate the differences and embrace the differences that we find in others and learn from those differences uh, in our common quest for truth as well. You see, maybe this is a connection with fundamentalism. So uh, in our quest for truth to find those places where we connect and where our own vision of, of the created world and, and the new creation toward which we're moving, uh, uh, that's important. My name is Jonathan Best, and this has been Liminal Theology. Learn more at liminaltheology.org. Thank you.